and welcome to an all new Talking Foosball Extra, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. My name is Nick Wiltung and today I'm recording this episode at my cabin in Norway. And if you read your scanty crime novels, you know that something criminal and horrible is about to happen whenever a cabin is mentioned. Given that, I thought it was perfect to time to talk about Perta BC. So, we're going to talk about the sporting... Uh, efforts so far, and, well, the criminal part comes uh, when we talk about Lars Windhorst. When it comes to the old lady, there's no one better than Mr. Matt Herman himself to call up, and here he is. How are you doing over there in the States, uh, Matt? Ah, not bad, not bad. It's sort of sort of mid-afternoon over here, and, uh, I don't know, I went into work and, and tried to sell the undergraduate journalism and sports communications certificate programs to some students. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's what I do these days. Sounds terrific. Anyways, in part one, we'll uh, take a deep dive into Hertha's uh, season so far on the pitch. And in part two, we get into the really juicy stuff that includes Israeli operatives and last Vintost. Hertha BC, Matt, they've hired a new coach in Sandra Schwartz at the start of the season. And this time around, the officials and the club hoped that everything would get better after having had a total of uh, seven different coaches since 2019. Paul Dada, it has to be said, was in there twice during that period of time. Nine matches into the season now. What are your thoughts on Hertha so far? Have they improved under Schwartz's leadership so far? Uh, they have, and they haven't, and I'll explain that. They have in that they're generally playing a much more coherent and active brand of football than they have for, for many, many years, actually. And from that respect, you're seeing something that you haven't seen in a long time, and you're seeing progress in terms of, you know, a functioning team unit, which has not always been the case. Unfortunately, the results have been a little bit shaky. You know, at this stage, after nine matches last season, Hertha had actually picked up 12 points. Presently, they just got eight. Uh, I mean, obviously, the, the table situation is, is quite different. And, you know, things really didn't start to get terrible at Hertha last season until much later in the season, results-wise. Overall, though, I'm more or less with where I believe the major part of the fan base to be, at least what you can see on the, the television screen and what you can see in some of the press reports, I'm satisfied. I think that things are going well. I think that most of the new players that have been brought in have been integrated pretty well. They've shown us a little bit of what they can do. I think, you know, Chidera Juke is just a delightful player to watch. And, you know, anytime you have a player like that in your team, it's worth tuning in. We haven't had that since since Cunha probably. But at the same time, I also know that if results were to start going south or if we were to have, you know, a series of injuries or, you know, a number of not entirely unlikely eventualities, the mood could really change as it so often has in the recent past. Well, uh, you mentioned that you're sort of satisfied, not quite there. And, well, I get it because Hertha haven't actually lost since match day four. Would you believe it? So that is five matches unbeaten this far. So they recovered from that dreadful start that they had to the season when they lost the inner city derby to Union Berlin 3-1. And then they lost two of the following three matches. Uh, both of these were 
1-0 defeats, one of them against Borussia Mönchengladbach, the other one against the Borussia Dortmund. So not really devastating losses and, well, losses against good teams. But, you know, since then, in those five matches, it's basically, besides that win against Augsburg, it's basically a draw city for the old lady. So that leaves me wondering, does this team lack the sort of killer instinct that is required to win matches in the Bundesliga? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think I think the results speak for themselves. I think I'm I'm not sure that that is a, a hugely pressing problem because I do still think that this team is developing in the right direction. But I look at some of these results and especially you look at the Leverkusen match, the one that ended up 2-2, which you know, on a different day especially with a different referee, perhaps. Uh, this was the VAR decision that, that puzzled pretty much everybody in Germany. And with a little bit better concentration, I mean, that, that goal that they gave to Patrick Schick late in that game was basically just a mental error. The Mites goal late, bit of a mental error. The goal to, to allow Freiburg to get to 2-2 last week was a goalkeeping error. I mean, I would actually say that it's it's a twofold killer instinct problem. One being that they need to sort of clean up both defensive concentration and in some cases individual concentration. And also, I am not fully convinced by the sort of quality of finishing or quality of like chance creation that's come up for Hertha thus far. I mean, we have a lot of exciting attacking talent. I mentioned Tudor Ajuki already. He's a wonderful dribbler. He's, you know, got great close control. He's very quick. <laughs> I haven't seen him put in all that many shots on target just yet. Wilfred Conga, who has been the sort of marquee center forward signing over the summer, hasn't really produced much just yet, even though he gets himself into some pretty good positions at times. Yeah, I think we still have a lot of work to do, probably at both ends, if we want to start turning all these draws, or at least some of these draws, into wins. Mm. Well, how much baggage from last season? And, you know, last season was really a botched affair, which, uh, you know, it, it started out with uh, Typhon Korkut coming in and results went sour under Dardai. And then Typhon Korkut was replaced by uh, none other than Felix Maggot. So how much of that baggage is Zandra Schwartz still having to deal with? I would say surprisingly little, really. A lot happened over the summer. You have to say, I mean, we'll get to some of this in part two, especially regarding Werner Gegenbauer's, you know, resignation and eventual replacement as the president of the club. As you mentioned earlier, Zandra Schwarz came in and that was after Freddie Bobich was able to conduct a fairly deliberate and not sort of quick turnaround search for a new coach. And the number of players who were shipped out over the summer who had basically been underperformers, players who either were bit players and you never quite understood why they ever bought them in the first place, or, you know, big ticket players who never really lived up to their reputations. I'm thinking of people like Shishov Piontek in that category. I feel like a lot of the players who were quite prominent in some of the underperformances over the last few years. And even some players who I would like. I mean, I, I still think that, you know, Dedrick Boyata is a very good defender. His price tag, his skill set, age, all that just didn't match where Hair to wear out anymore. And so they had a big clear out. And I think for the most part, 
a lot of the sort of I don't want to call it rot because, you know, as I mentioned, a lot of these are still good players. But a lot of the players who are carrying a lot of that sort of psychic baggage are gone. You have fresh wind with a new president, fresh wind with a new coach. And the fans have a totally different attitude now. I mean, as I mentioned, you know, Hertha are, are four points off of where they were last season. And basically, the fans have not wavered an inch behind this team because they see that the team's working hard. They see that the team is you know, playing for each other and playing with purpose. And I think there's a great deal of patience at the club right now, which is an utterly <laughs> unaccustomed position to be in. This is a chronically impatient and uh, <laughs> volatile club. So having this period of, of like relative calm, it feels really weird and pretty good. <laughs> I mean, I remember last season that the fans actually, or some of the ultras came down to the head to training pitch to tell the team that if you don't play for that shirt, you'll hear it in the stadium. And we expect more from you. And, you know, then there was sort of a standoff between the team and uh, the fans where the team actually decided not to uh, go to the fans after matches, you know, to, to thank the fans for their support, which is, uh, you know, a custom that basically is usually everywhere in Germany. So that relationship has sort of healed then. Yeah, yeah, it really has. And in some ways, I think both some of the factors that I just mentioned about, you know, sort of fresh wind coming through the club have certainly helped. I also think that having the derby on match day one, when, you know, nobody is really ready to flip their wig, let's just say, I think has really helped. In truth, like that was by far our worst match of the season. That was the only game that we've played in the league this season where we just plain weren't in the game. Like we lost three, one, but it, it could have been, you know, could have been five nil on a different day. It was, we got creamed and got creamed fair and square. If that game had happened on match day, you know, nine or 10 after a series of bad results, it might've been a totally different atmosphere. Cause that was, that was really the flashpoint last season was losing three times in a row, you know, both in the league and in the cup to Union. I think at the moment, you know, Union has, is, is a sore point among Hertha fans, but I think people have kind of accepted that, you know, they're ahead of us. They're, they're better. And, you know, especially if you lose to them on match day one, this is a, a side that's, that's really well coached and, you know, has, has a lot of continuity, even though, you know, Union does change players out of fair, but, but it, the system and, and the core of the players are, are much the same. Whereas, you know, Hertha had a new coach, had a bunch of new players, they weren't ready for it, and they weren't good, and they just put it past them. It's fine. Well, I mean, if you wanted to be a, a bit for Jesus, you, you could have said that the Union are so popular that even uh, dictators who claim that they're elected democratically visit them oh, yeah. to say hi to the players. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, <laughs> enough about Victor Orban. Um, <laughs> we talk about the culture of the club. I mean... I read an interview with Felix Maggot at the end of last season where he said that, you know what, I talked to Typhon Korkut and he told me that this was one of his worst experiences as a coach because nobody was talking to one another. There was a culture of different parts of the leadership working against one another and you had to deal with that as a coach. Do you think that has changed? I'm not sure. I think some of that might have had to do with, I don't know, Freddie Bobich is is very much now the man 
at the club, or at least him and the folks that he has brought in, his handpicked people, whether those are scouts or Kata Plana or whatever the case may be. And I think that to a degree, there was a lot of sort of hangover towards the end of last season of like the old regime versus the new regime. Because, you know, Ferner Gegenbauer was still the president. There were still probably quite a few people who he had brought in and or whom Michel Preitz had brought in. And I think there was a maybe just a little bit of a discontinuity in, in philosophies or, or outlooks or loyalties in some cases. I don't know if that's totally been cleared up. I mean, those kinds of statements, statements saying that like the – working atmosphere at the club is is very poor and sort of secretive and contradictory and weird jealousies. These these are things that I had heard for years. And, you know, Jurgen Klinsmann in his famous dossier outlined some of this stuff. And, you know, despite the fact that, that Klinsmann has been unmasked again and again as, as a pretty poor coach, when it comes to sort of like just, you know, diagnosing management problems, he seems like he's got a Decent head on his shoulders. Almost everything he said in his uh, his dossier about the sort of professional culture of the club was true. I tend to think at the moment with the new president who, you know, don't forget he has a history as, as a fan, as, as an ultra at one point in time anyway, and the fact that you have what seems to me to be a sporting director and a coach who are on the same page who sort of share certain – values in terms of what kind of football they favor. Things look pretty harmonious right now at that level. I'm always wary <laughs> of, of speaking too soon, though, with this club. Well, in the next few weeks, Hertha are going to face some tough opposition because, well, next up, there's RB Leipzig on the road. Then there's Schalke at home, which is, given the table position currently, it's a must-win match. And after that, it's Werder, who've had a pretty decent start of the season, if I might say so. You might, and you'd be right. And that is then followed by a home match against none other than Bayern München. So, to remind yourself, Zandra Schwarz's side are currently on eight points, which means that despite not having lost for five matches in a row, they're only two points away from the drop zone. So... Is this period that is coming up, is this a sort of a make-or-break period for Schwartz and the team? Um, I think results-wise in terms of, of – because I think this season being so strange in the way that it's it's split up. I mean, you're getting to, I don't know, what is it, match day 15 before you have a long, long break of you know basically two months. The worst thing that can happen is that you find yourself in the drop zone during the World Cup break. Because then you're basically just going to be inundated with negative narratives surrounding your team, surrounding your transfer window, surrounding everything. So, yeah, you don't want to be there. And remember, I, I think the thing is with Schalke match, it, it's a must-win match, but Schalke will most likely be under the guardianship of a new coach at that point. Oh, yeah. yeah because sure. Frank Rama is probably going to get one more match, and I don't think that is going to turn out well for him. So, at that point, the trauma football at Schalke will be out of the window, which uh, might ask some difficult questions of her to them. It could. It, yeah, it certainly could. I have some doubts about the quality of Schalke's squad, to be fair. I mean, I, I think that a different coach could probably get a bit more out of it, but I do look at their squad and sniff a little bit at it. I don't know. <laughs> I, I feel, despite everything that I've said about the sort of disappointing nature of Hertha's results this season, 
I also look, and, and you mentioned it, you sort of referred to it a little bit at the top, that, you know, they have drawn or narrowly lost to a lot of really good teams. So I look at that stretch and I see Leipzig away, Schalke at home, Werder away, and, and Bayern at home. And clearly that's, other than the Schalke game, those are fairly stiff opposition. But I'm not really truly scared of any of them. Like I don't, I just don't see this as a team that gets crushed like Hertha got crushed on, on a number of occasions in the last few seasons. I feel like their game is a little too controlled, and I also see that they pose other teams a lot more danger going forward than they used to. I mean, I would not be shocked to see a, a Hertha get a win out of not just Schalke but one of one of those other games. Well, we'll see how it turns out. Anyways, uh, my last question for this segment is going to be uh, about Herta's current squad because, I mean, Lars Winterst and his investment into Herta has been brought up quite a bit in the German press of late, and we'll get into that in part two. But Lars Winterst, he has bought shares in Herta for 374 million euros. What you have to keep in mind is that Herta had to buy out an American investment group called KKR for around, I think, 71.4 million euros. So the actual amount of money that Herta has generated from selling those shares to Lars Vintost is around 300 million euros. Anyways, that is a lot of money. That is the biggest deal that has been made within German football ever. So how happy are you with that squad that, you know, given the cash infusion of more than 300 million euros, since 2019. When I think about the 300 million euro part of that statement, <laughs> I'm not very happy at all. I gotta be <laughs> honest. Um, I think the Hertha squad is a pretty whatever middle of the road Bundesliga squad. I don't think it's terrible. I mean, there's a lot of players in that squad who I really like. And I think that there's, there's especially some players who I think are, are, are still going to get better over time. But, you know, I think it's been pretty well documented that Hertha took some pretty big swings and misses in the initial stages of its sort of flush with cash period. But, I mean, to be perfectly honest, you know, even one of their sort of more notable flops, Dodi Lukabakio, is starting to come good. He is their leading scorer. He's got four goals. He's He looks good most weeks. He's starting to play some defense. Luka Tuzar, who they spent even more on from Lyon, is starting to look really good as well. He's, you know, one of one of their better players these days. Maybe maybe their best midfielder at the moment. I don't think all is yet lost. <laughs> and I do think that some of the recent buys, you know, and Juke who is who is uh, you know, on loan, but maybe we can work something out once the year comes to an end. He looks great. I think Augustine Rohel, who we've not seen a lot of, we've basically seen one and a half games from him, but he looks to be potentially a very good buy. I think that the story of the last several years, and we'll probably get into get into that in more depth in part two when we talk more about the Vintors level of things, has basically been a sad story. It's been a story of failure. But I, I'm not convinced that the future can't be good with this squad and, you know, with even better buys and sales going forward. Right. Well, let's take a break here. And in part two, we'll take a closer look at Lars Vintors and his time at Hertha. And, well, let's just say that the things we're going to talk about should probably be turned into a Netflix series very, very soon.
right, this is part two of Talking Foosball Extra, the Bundesliga show. I'm uh, Nick Wiltang, and I'm still joined by Matt Herman talking about all things Hertha. And, well, in part one, we talked quite a bit about Last Vintage. So let me give you a little bit of background on Last Vintage. He got into Hertha in 2019, and, well... That made history because this was, at that point, the biggest deal made within German football when he decided to buy 36.6% of the shares of the professional division for a massive 125 million euros. Now, Matt, just to give our listeners some background knowledge, how did that deal come to pass and what was the thinking behind it? Because Vintos is basically, he's a juggler of financial investments. He was like this wunderkind under the Helmut Kohl era when he started establishing tech companies at the age of, what was it, 12, 13? He's went bust a couple of times. So what was the thinking about getting in a man who has, a, well, a checkered past, to say the least? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the specifics of his past are definitely checkered and definitely raise a lot of questions about the judgment of, you know, folks like Werner Gegenbauer, Ingo Schiller, the former finance chairman, as well as Michel Preet, sort of the three main leaders of Hertha at the time that Vinhorst came in. All of whom are gone at this point. Yeah, all of whom are now gone. Yeah, I think basically they were just seduced by the idea of someone with a whole lot of money willing to invest in the club you know, whoever he was. As far as why Ventors would be interested in Hertha, that is a little bit of a mystery just because of the specifics of both the club and the league. The league, because, duh, the 50 plus one rule means that an investor can't actually control a club. They can exert lots of influence. We've seen it with, you know, Hans-Michel Kuna with Haas uh, Fowl and a few other clubs having investors who've, who've wielded very, very big influence. But for the most part, investors have largely been stymied by, you know, German Vereinsrecht. Basically, the, the way that, that clubs operate mean that, you know, the members have to control things. So a lot of investors have been sort of scared off by that. Apparently, that did not scare off Las Vintorst. That, I think, maybe has something to do with the fact that, you know, A, he's German, and I can see why he would want to invest in a Bundesliga club and a, a club that he thought might have a certain potential, despite Hertha being Hertha, a, a sort of underachieving big city club. <laughs> but also it's just the investment community globally. I would say primarily, you know, sovereign wealth funds in the Middle East, as well as, you know, sort of institutional investors from the United States. And to a lesser extent, those who are based in London, as, as is Las Ventors, are kind of attracted by European football because they see it as just a good value proposition. They see European football as an underleveraged product, a product that basically, because of trends within the media industry, you know, basically live sports has become one of the only reliable drivers of either pay TV or commercial driven TV. It's much more so than, than any other kind of content. You know, broadcasters have shown a willingness to pay higher and higher and higher prices for it. So I think a lot of investors see live sports as a good investment and see even at a club like Hertha in a league like the Bundesliga, there might be room for, you know, making some money. I don't think that he had really done his research or as the investors say, due diligence on <laughs> the sort of the ins and outs of how it would actually go once he started putting his money into this club. Evidently, he thought that he would earn himself a much more robust seat at the table, so to speak, than what he got. And uh, we can talk about sort of a little bit of the, the dynamics there. 
<laughs> I mean, thing that struck me about Vintos in his first interview that he gave about you know buying Hertha, and I think that interview was actually in Spiegel. He told them that, well, you know, I don't know an awful lot about football. I don't really care about football. I don't really follow it. I don't know the ins and outs of the business, but I want to turn this club into a big city club, and I see marketing opportunities and all that. And, you know, I mean, the fact that this is a club from the capital, it should mean that you should have the potential to have a club that, you know, competes for honours. It's the biggest city in Germany, by far. But then again, I mean... Yes, what research had he done about the 50 plus 1 rule? What research had he done about the supremacy of Bayern and how they and Borussia Dortmund are able to generate money? Yeah, not much, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, he has then gone on to spend, after that initial deal that was valued at 125 million euros, he's gone on to spend another 249 million euros, increasing his numbers of shares in the professional divisions to... 66.6%, which still means nothing because the 50 plus one rule dictates that the members of the club dictate what is going to happen. But given that he spent that much money, how big has his influence been at Hertha during his time spent there so far? That's really difficult to say, actually. It's always been a point of contention, and there's always been multiple interpretations that you could come to for almost all the big decisions that have gone right or wrong. You think about some of the notable missteps that have happened, whether that is overspending in the initial couple of transfer windows surrounding Vindhorst's takeover or you know partial takeover, whatever. You think about some of the timing and and precise nature of you know coaching hires that were made. You know they didn't seem to to work out very well, but it's not really clear that Vintors had a, a ton of influence over them. I mean, I guess probably the biggest thing that you could credit or <laughs> discredit to him would be his involvement in bringing in some of these former players at various levels. Jürgen Klinsmann being the most notable example, who was the sort of board member who had Vindhorst's ear and who eventually became coach and, you know, didn't have a very happy ending there. Or the fact that uh, Jens Lehmann was brought in as an advisor on sort of Vindhorst's behalf before having to you know, resign a disgrace after making some racist comments. In that respect, what limited evidence we have about Vindhorst's influence would suggest that he has not been a good influence. And if you just look at this from the sort of the view from 50,000 feet and you just say, we can correlate Hertha's, you know, maybe <laughs> three, of, three of the team's worst seasons – well, other than the ones you get relegated in. But three of the team's most troubled seasons were all the ones in which Vinthorst was most heavily involved, were the ones that he came in, talked a big game, and didn't really follow through. I actually don't think that he personally is to blame for much of that at all, because I think that for the most part, the people who were working in the either sporting side or business side were actually able to keep him at arm's length. There's been a couple of exceptions to that. There was one time when he was supposed to, you know, put some money up leading into a, a transfer window. And there were some deals that were, you know, maybe made or not made because some of the money that Hertha thought was going to be there to make these deals wasn't there, which was something that really hamstrung the club at the time. But I think for the most part, the problems with Vintors have not been like 
oh, he made this big mistake. It's just been the sense of upset and the sense of conflict and the sense of, you know, unease that has surrounded the club during his time. <laughs> and well, that's the thing about Lost Vintels. He does pay late. Anyways, we'll get to that later. Now, Werner Gingbauer, the man who has been the president of Hertha since 2008, and while well, he stepped down just this year, he and Lars Vintost fell out with one another during those three tumultuous years that Vintost has been there. Do you know why they fell out with one another? It's basically just a straight-up power struggle. I don't know what might have been promised or implied to Vintorst before he came in. I mean, clearly, Werner Gegenbauer was part of the discussions along with, you know, Pretz and Schiller about bringing Vintorst in. I don't know exactly what he was led to believe in terms of what influence he would have, but it was pretty clear from the get-go that it rubbed Werner Gegenbauer the wrong way that Lars Vintorst felt that he had the license to speak for the club and speak for, you know, the club's goals or the club's sort of, you know, financial health or long-term planning. I mean, I remember six months after Vince Horst came in, Hertha went on a, a training trip to Florida where they were, you know, practicing during the winter break. And, you know, there were like consecutive days going back and forth between Vintors and Van Gegenbauer where they would literally contradict each other about what the plans for the club were, what the goals were, who should be talking about what, Werner Gegenbauer, you know, basically jealously guarding his own authority, which, to be fair, he was guarding it because he was right. He was guarding it because he wanted to emphasize that, you know, I'm actually the president of this club and I run this club and this club is in charge of the football operations, no matter who put in how much money. That's just how... That's just how clubs run here in Germany. But he did not always do it in maybe the most, I don't know, sensitive or, you know, politic way. And it just turned into a, a, a basically a spitting contest after a while. Yeah, and as it turns out, and uh, this is what many of you have probably been waiting for. And uh, if you haven't heard this story before, get out your popcorn. It turns out that Vintors actually tried everything in his power to get Gingbauer removed from his office. So, uh, Matt, why do you explain to our listeners how Lars Winters went about that? Yeah, and this only came to light in the last couple of weeks. Werner Gegenbauer resigned from his post just a little bit before the end of the season. And, you know, Hertha spent the early part of the summer conducting a, a special election to find a new president to fill out the rest of his term. That ended up being a guy called Kai Bernstein, who I mentioned before, who was the former ultra, who, you know, has sort of won the hearts of the club, not only through his his background, but he's done a, a, a lot of smart things like, you know, smart, simple, simple things like get better food at the stadium, you know, actually have a donor stand, which in Berlin, the fact that there wasn't one before was just, you know... <laughs> idiotic. Um, he's done a lot of simple things well. However, behind the scenes, both preceding that resignation and, you know, in some cases through the, the, the presidential campaign and election, there was this like controversy happening that no one knew about between Las Vintorst and this Israeli security firm called Shibumi. Apparently, Las Vintorst engaged this company who do, you know, basically like corporate espionage and 
smear campaigns, to put it <laughs> auf gut Deutsch. <laughs> they, you know, essentially, Las Venturas, and this is all alleged, of course, because this is the subject of a lawsuit, although because it went to court in Israel, the you know, documents pertaining to this case are part of public record there. And a lot of reporters have reviewed them. And I've read some of those reports. It seems quite credible. Ventors apparently engaged this company to help him push Gegenbauer out. Like Gegenbauer, who, of course, had been president for, you know, a long time, 14 years. He basically said, do whatever it takes. And you know, Shibumi being probably more conversant in the world of, of corporate espionage and spear campaigns than, than Vinthorst, they came up with all kinds of very creative things. They set up bots on social media or sort of like sock puppet accounts. They got in touch with some actual real people who, you know, are involved with the club at as a sort of like fan or like blogger type level. They, you know hired a, an editorial cartoonist to draw, you know, caricatures of Werner Gegenbauer as, you know, doing and saying various jerky things. <laughs> they set up websites, one being like a, a, a fake sports blog website that would run articles that would paint Werner Gegenbauer in a negative light. And the weird and ironic thing about all this is that even at the time when this was happening, some of this stuff about, like, for example, the, the the fake sports website, as well as some of these sock puppet accounts on Twitter, people noticed it and thought it was weird that this was happening and people thought that there was something fishy going on, but no one knew anything about how to substantiate it. And all the while, also, like, Vanny Gegenbauer, just through his own inaction, mismanagement, you know, sticking with Michel Preitz too long, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, he did everything <laughs> – to discredit himself and there was really no need for a smear campaign like it was pretty clear that his time was up as the president that like you know the fans had barely reelected him in the previous election you know he had gotten a, a tiny majority of like 50 some percent even though he was running unopposed so you know probably didn't need a smear campaign from an Israeli security company to get rid of him and in fact, that is the perspective <laughs> that Las Ventors took when Werner Gegenbauer signed off from the post. He, instead of, you know, I think he was supposed to have paid Shibumi a million dollars initially to cover expenses and then another, I think, three and a half million upon like the success of the campaign, which I, I think was probably not defined clearly enough. But Shibumi basically sent him a bill saying, hey, Gegenbauer quit. Would you like to pay us the rest of the bill now? And uh, some of these court documents show communiques between them, SMS and, and emails, where he was basically trying to say that he hadn't made any promises to pay anybody anything and that it's not clear to him that Shibumi's campaign was what actually got Gegenbauer to resign. And, you know, it looks beyond terrible. For Ventorst. He basically has shown himself to be underhanded, dishonest, uncollegial, power hungry. All the things that people accused him of are look look pretty pretty legit if this story holds up, which it really looks like it will. Well, I mean, part of the Israeli court case that, uh, which I think now has been removed, actually, but part of that case, Der Spiegel and a number of other publications around the world got. <laughs> actually got 
got their hands on the on the card documents that were handed in by Shibumi because Lars Vintos decided not to pay his bill, which reminds you of that transfer window that you mentioned earlier. Well, I mean, part of that WhatsApp messages, which I mean, it's sort of if you're in a public position like Lars Vintos, it's always great to have a little bit of deniability. Like, I mean, he has a guy called Andreas uh, Fritzenkötter, who is his press spokesman and all that, and he got established the initial contact. And he emailed and uh, WhatsApp back and forth with Shibumi. But then Lars Vintos gets in and uh, writes, Good morning, Ori. Many thanks and really great seeing you. Unlike the project Euro 2020, which was the, you know, code name for getting Gigenbauer removed from his office. Yeah, Ori being the chief strategist at Shibumi there. But, um, I mean, why would he get into the back and forth, emailing back and forth and into a WhatsApp group? And, you know, I mean, it's the internet. It's, it's 2022. You have to consider the fact that everything might get leaked or hacked. Yet he feels the need to get personally involved in that. Yeah, well, I think a lot of these, you know, very rich, very powerful, very influential mogul types, whether they're on the level of Lars Vintorst, which is, you know, not not a bad level to be on monetarily, or, you know, you look at some of these recent leaks of, of the communiques of, of Elon Musk and his coterie of, you know, <laughs> sycophantic, not quite as rich CEOs. You know, these are these are basically dudes who – you know, think they know everything and that there are very few consequences that they'll ever, ever have to deal with. I think it's just a a matter of his own, you know, lack of self-awareness about his position in this. I, I don't think it's anything more complicated than that. Well, I mean, talking about consequences, where does that leave Last Vintos and her to be C? I mean, Vintos is now saying that he wants the club to buy back his shares at the price that he paid for them, which was... Everybody knew it back then, and everybody knows it now. The share prices that he paid for Herta were out of this world, and the only reason why he paid them, it was designed to pump the club full of money in order to get players that could potentially get them to the Champions League, which hasn't happened. I mean, if you look at the squad and how it's valued on transfer market... Where are we at right now? I mean, the players are probably valued less than 300 million euros, I would assume. I'm bringing it up right now. Let's see. So... Ah, okay. Total market value, $114.5 million. So, eh, Euro dollars are pretty pretty close these days. That's, that's, <laughs> a, that's a damn sight less than 300 Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, so that's not going to happen. And anyways, I don't think that Herta would be able to, you know, push for such a deal anyways, if even if they wanted to. So, so what's up next in this saga? I think there's really only a couple of ways forward. I do agree that, that Las Ventorst is for a ton of reasons, not really tenable anymore as an investor. I think he has sort of proved himself to be impatient, unwilling to work with other, you know, key stakeholders, people who have just as legitimate grounds as him to want to be involved. I mean, I, I think that there might have been a somewhat justifiable sense on his part that, you know, working with people like Werner Gegenbauer or Michel Preitz, <laughs> there was no future in it because they just weren't that good at what they did, or at least were sort of out of their depth. I think, you know, today when you're when you're dealing with Freddie Bobich, who has a much stronger track record, I don't see why someone wouldn't want to work with him. And I think that there would be 
every reason for, you know, in a different world, if things had, had started off on that basis, maybe things wouldn't have gone so bad. But that's not where we are today. Where we are today, Lars Ventoris has got to go. He's never going to get all of his money back. And we're kind of left with the choice. You either find a new investor, which, you know, Hertha does have the right under the, the terms of the deal that they made with Lars Ventoris, that if he wanted to sell his shares at any price, that Hertha gets to have some sort of, you know, they have the right to be party to those sales and that they, they can refuse investors who they don't see as, you know, fit people to be involved with the club. Obviously, this is all a lot of idle rumor, but at least at the very initial stage, some of the people who seem maybe interested are more of the kind of people who pop up all the time in, you know, football club takeovers in, in countries where, you know, the rules about investors are a lot looser. Places like, you know, England and Italy and France and whatnot. We've got a couple of people involved with National Football League clubs, the owner of the Patriots, Robert Kraft has been rumored in the Bild Zeitung, Todd Bowley, who recently, you know, bought into Chelsea. I don't know that they will be as foolish as Las Venturas when it comes to, you know, when, when someone explains to them that when it comes down to brass tacks in Germany, you don't have control, even though you put all the money in. I don't know how that attractive that's going to seem to them. But, you know, it's not going to scare everyone away forever. I think that as investment money pours into European football, there are still going to be people who look at the investment possibilities and think that Germany does have value. You know, just because you can buy outright uh, a team in Denmark or Belgium or whatever doesn't really mean that that's, you know, you could, there, there is a ceiling to growth in some of those, some of those teams. I mean, I think there's still a lot of people very interested in buying, you know, EPL teams or teams in Spain or whatever, because, you know, there's, just a higher ceiling for that. But somebody's going to take the plunge in Germany after Ventor. So they're, you know, they're either going to do just as poorly as him or they're going to do better. What I would prefer to see, honestly, is I would love to see an outright fan buyback. I mean, 300 million euros is a ton of money, a ton of money. But, you know, if, if, if you actually created a campaign and it doesn't mean that everyone has to, you know, throw in their, their, their 10 bucks and it has to be, you know, a, a zillion people paying in here. I mean, if somebody wants to like buy a larger part, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I would love to see, I would love to see a much more broad based crowdsourced investment in the club to get the club back under member control. And, you know, <laughs> I don't have a lot of money, but I would spend some on that for sure. Well, I just did the math quickly in my head. And, uh, you know, if we're talking about 10 bucks, uh, if Hertha has uh, 37,400,000 fans who are willing to spend 10 bucks on buying shares from Las Vintos, this might work out. Or you might have to explain to Robert Croft that there are a lot of lovely massage parlors in Berlin as well. <laughs> you just made, Anyways, and uh, there are. <laughs> <laughs> my last question is going to be about Hertha's current president, who is uh, Kai Bernstein, whom you, you've mentioned a couple of times there. Well, he was actually swept into office on the sort of wave that was of criticism that uh, Werner Gingbau was facing at the time when he was stepped down. Now... Now that some of the more murky details of that, uh, you know, public pressure against Gingbauer has become public, where does it leave Bernstein? I don't think it changes his position much at all. I think whatever the nature of Gingbauer's departure was, and I do think that this casts a little bit of a shadow over that, 
I think I I don't know. I hope I made a good case before. I think Gegenbauer's time was was coming to a close. You know, come what may. What I do think is going to be a challenge for him, not so much you know dealing with that side of of the recent past, but just managing the sale or managing the transition to a post Windhorst future. It's not at all clear what the nature of that's going to be. It's not at all clear how interested, you know, he or anyone else at the club are in finding a new investor or if they're looking to, you know, conduct this in a different way. But, you know, most of the news coming out of the club since he has been elected president has been of a positive, restorative, you know, kind of hopeful nature. And this story from the Ventors camp with the whole Shibumi mess basically takes us back into the bad old days. And there is just, I don't know, there's sort of a sort of a damage control that needs to be done of of keeping the club sort of protected from some of this some of this scum. I mean, I think in general that they've they've done well. I mean I think that, you know, they were actually quite measured but firm in the way that they talked about the steps that they wanted to take investigating the story before they made any decisions. But they, you know, they, they said very openly, like we're, we're conducting an investigation. We've hired a law firm to help us in this effort to, to go through these documents and figure out what's what. And it was, it was Vintorst very much who flew off the handle and said, Oh, this is, this is not, this is not the kind of, you know, new beginning that we had been promised. And why are you getting lawyers involved? And I think it basically made, the club looked very measured and sane and made Vinthorst, although this is not always difficult, look uh, like a bit of a, a fly-by-night chancer, which I think he's he's done quite a lot to, to give himself that reputation as of late. Great. Uh, so this episode of Talking Foosball Expert has been produced by Aiden Rentoul. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Talking Foosball. Matt. Always great to have you on. Uh, where can people follow you on Twitter? Oh, they can find me at, at Mr. Matt Herman. And you can find me also pretty much every Monday or sometimes Tuesday on Talking Foosball Direct, of course. Yeah, that is what is up next on this feed. Anyways, my name is Nick Viltong. You can follow me on Twitter at Musings, And you can also download the FC Quiz app if you want to get quizzing about German football. I write all the questions about the Bundesliga, so check out that. Well, until next time, it is goodbye for now. Goodbye.